Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We are now on part six of our Toxic Shame series. This is by far the longest ongoing series that I've done so far and arguably the most important. I want to give a disclaimer before today's episode that it's going to be a heavy one. We're going to be talking about sexual abuse. So if this isn't something that you're ready for right now, that's okay. You can skip this episode. I myself am a survivor of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I know just as well as anyone that you're either ready to do this work and hear about this, 
or you're not. And I want you to know that if you're not ready, that's okay. And you can come back to this episode anytime when you are ready. So if you are ready though, be prepared to have some big emotions come up and take care of yourself through listening to this. This episode was hard for me to research and record. By now, having listened to all five episodes of this shame series that we've done, and if you haven't yet, I highly recommend going back and listening to part one and working your way all the way through because all these topics build upon one another and I'm going to be referring back to a lot of the information that we've covered in the previous five episodes. We've covered all different types of abuse, emotional neglect, physical abuse, abandonment, and by now you understand what healthy shame is, what toxic shame is, when shame becomes your identity. You understand how toxic shame is passed down through generation to generation and how Toxic shame can manifest in criminal behavior and how many people who become criminal offenders, whether that be violent crimes, sexual crimes, are reenacting their own victimization. And those of us who have been victims of sexual abuse or sexual assault in any form often find ourselves wondering, why me? Why did this happen to me? Sexual violation in any form is debilitating on so many different levels. And I hope that this episode today can help someone out there who is struggling like I have in my life. And I'm starting this episode by reaching out to you virtually as much as I can and giving you a huge hug and letting you know that I'm here with you and We're going to be here together covering these difficult topics. So let's get into it. Sexual abuse is by far the most shaming of all forms of abuse. It takes less sexual abuse than almost any other form of abuse to induce toxic shame. And sexual abuse is incredibly widespread in our society today. And even more sadly is our awareness of this problem has grown tremendously over the last 40 years or so. But historically, it's not something that was considered that big of a deal or it was so taboo that it wasn't spoken about at all. And this leads to even more toxic shame because it is an unspoken secret. In the past, our understanding of sexual abuse was limited to this kind of one form of sexual abuse. And these types of stories involved physical, hands-on sexual abuse. But what we know now is that We need to expand our understanding of this kind of abuse. Sexual abuse involves entire families. So let's divide up the different types of sexual abuse so you can understand what it looks like. So first we have 
physical sexual abuse. This involves hands-on touching in a sexual way. And the range of abusive behaviors that are sexual include sexualized hugging or kissing, any kind of sexual touching or fondling, oral and anal sex, masturbation of the victim or forcing the victim to masturbate the offender, or full sexual intercourse. That is usually physical sexual abuse is what we automatically think of when we think of sexual abuse. Now we move to something called overt sexual abuse. This involves voyeurism. If you know what voyeurism it means, it's kind of like looking at people. Imagine, you know, someone installing a hidden camera in a toilet or something like that, looking in the window of someone. Um, another type of overt sexual abuse is exhibitionism. This might look like exposing yourself in a public place. Um, when I was living in a bigger city, I remember someone exposing their genitals on public transport. And this is a type of sexual abuse to all the people who are witnessing it. So voyeurism or exhibitionism can be outside or inside the home. Parents often sexually abuse children through voyeurism and exhibitionism. Parents who are sexual abusers, of course, not all parents. The criteria for in-home voyeurism or exhibitionism is whether the parent is being sexually stimulated by the behavior or not. And sometimes the parent might be so out of touch with their own sexuality that they're not even aware of how sexual they're actually being. And the giveaway here is that the child almost always has a kind of icky feeling about it. It feels gross. You feel like you want to curl up and run away. It feels wrong. And I've spoken about this on the podcast so often that many of us who endured childhood sexual abuse or other forms of childhood trauma, one of the things that gives rise to a lot of our psychological suffering, disorder, dysfunction labels later in our adult life is because we've been so disconnected from our gut feeling. So often when you were young, you might have known that something was wrong and it didn't feel right, but in order to survive and be okay in your environment, you had to ignore those gut feelings. But you knew that something was wrong and you had to stuff it. So this type of overt sexual abuse of voyeurism and exhibitionism might present like maybe a father leering at his daughter in her underwear when she's coming out of the bathroom or another family member, maybe a stepfather or something like that. Other people might experience having no privacy in their house much less like in the bathroom where they should have complete privacy even from their parents. Some people experience having their mothers bathe their genital parts all the way up until they were eight or nine years old. If you have ever read the book, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy, um, fantastic and very difficult book. Her mom bathed her and was with her while she was showering up until I think in her teenage years 
and she was very confused by this. It didn't feel sexual to her, and we will never really know if it was sexual or not, but regardless, it made her feel icky, and it was a violating. We're not talking about the parent having a passing sexual thought or feeling. It's about a parent using a child for their own conscious or unconscious sexual stimulation. Now let's move to something that's a bit more confusing, and that is very much so not spoken about, which is covert sexual abuse. But in order to understand the difference between overt and covert, let's define those terms. So overt, this overt sexual abuse, which presents as this voyeuristic or exhibitionistic, is that even a word? (laughs) Probably not. I'm not even going to Google it. I'm too lazy. But overt means done or shown openly, plainly, or readily apparent, not secret or hidden. So what does covert mean? Not openly acknowledged or displayed, right? Covert operations, secret, done in the shadows. It's not really obvious, right? It's very obvious when a stepdad goes in and oogles his stepdaughter. Oops, I didn't mean to open the door while you were naked after the shower. That's overt, right? They know what they're doing. It's out in the open. So there are different forms of covert, secretive, hidden sexual abuse. The first type would be verbal. So this might involve inappropriate sexual talking. So maybe a father or a significant male figure in the home might call women whores or cunts or disgusting, objectified sexual names. On the other hand, a mother or a significant female figure in the home might be really depreciating men in a sexual way, right? It involves parents or caretakers having to know about every single detail of their children's private sexual life, maybe asking questions about a child's sexual physiology or questioning for minute details about their dates that they would have. Covert sexual abuse involves not receiving adequate information about sex. So this might involve having your period, for example, and having no idea what's going on when you begin menstruating. I've read stories in some of my books, particularly from John Bradshaw's book about toxic shame, healing the shame that binds you. He said that he had female clients who didn't even know that their vaginas had an opening in them until they were almost 20 years old. An overt kind of sexual abuse occurs when the parental figures in the home talk about sex in front of their children when the age level of the children is inappropriate. And it also occurs when parental figures make sexual remarks about the sexual parts of their children's bodies. So for example, I had a family member who's not in my immediate family, but a family member nonetheless, 
who made inappropriate comments about my breasts, which made me incredibly uncomfortable, so much so that I didn't even want to tell my parents about it. Something similar may have happened to you. This is covert sexual abuse. And in his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, John Bradshaw said that he worked with two male clients who were traumatized by their mother's jokes about the size of their penises, as well as female clients whose fathers and stepfathers teased them about the size of their boobs or their butts. And this, as I mentioned right before, happened to me on both things. I've had family members make comments about both of those things. And I want to reiterate, these were not my immediate family members. This was not my mother or father, but they were members of my family nonetheless. And I do remember on one occasion where I did mention it to my parents and it was just, just ignore that, right? That was weird. It's just like, shove it, whatever, just ignore it. That's just your quote unquote, I was going to say the family member, but that's just your uncle or that's just your grandfather. or That's just your way your cousin is, right? So covert sexual abuse can also look like boundary violations. And this involves kids witnessing parents engaging in sexual behavior. They may walk in on it frequently because their parents don't provide closed or locked doors or do these things in a time and place where children are sort of protected from that before they're mature enough to understand obviously mistakes happen, right? I think I've heard many stories where friends accidentally came across their parents engaging in this. And there are instances where it's an actual accident, but then there are many instances where I've heard listeners write me emails where they grew up, where maybe their mom was or dad was dating people and had no care if their kid heard them having sex with the person that they were dating at the time. And it was really traumatizing for them as children. So covert sexual abuse can also look like being walked in on in the bathroom and they're not taught to lock their doors or given permission to lock their doors. It's really important for parents to model appropriate nudity around their children right? That's being clothed appropriately after a certain age because children are sexually curious. It's very, very natural to be sexually curious. Beginning at around age three or between ages three to six, children start noticing their parents' bodies. They're even obsessed with nudity. I have received a couple of voicemails and emails in the past about My listeners who've said they felt extreme guilt about engaging in sexual play when they were little, maybe that was like touching each other's bodies as kids. This is a kid with another kid, mind you, right? When the age difference is is not massive or kissing or whatever, right? I remember when I was little, there was a younger boy who I had these curious feelings about and we were in daycare and we played mommy and daddy right and I think we might have like kissed each other my memories are very foggy and we like laid down together and we were like questioning what do mommies and daddies do right 
And I could have a lot of shame about that, or I can just say this was naturally something that was developmentally happening with me. So if this is something that you did when you were a kid, there are you need to use your judgment here because there's a certain element of sexual awakening and being curious with nudity and sex that is very, very normal when we're children. But people that are older and are in positions of power are ones who are in the wrong if they cross these boundaries. So back to the nudity thing, parents have to be careful walking around nude with young children Because even if mom, for example, walking around without her shirt on, I don't know, is not being stimulated sexually, the nudity is not sexual abuse, but she might be acting in a bit of a dysfunctional way because she's not modeling good sexual boundaries around her children. And something else, like the use of something like an enema, on a child at an early age can also be incredibly abusive in a way that leads to later sexual dysfunction and just a bad relationship with sex intimacy and boundaries because enemas can be a body boundary violation. The important thing that we want to remember here about covert sexual abuse, and I have by no means covered all the different ways that it can manifest, I want you to remember that it is hidden. It's not outright spoken. It can be conscious or unconscious on the part of the perpetrator. And at the end of the day, it makes you feel icky and it violates your boundaries. And it destroys your ability to know what's right, what's wrong. It can set us up to be more likely to be victims by other perpetrators in the future because little by little, it digs away at your intuitive sense of what's right and wrong and starts training you to stuff those feelings and question yourself. So next we're going to be talking about emotional sexual abuse. Emotional sexual abuse results from something called cross-generational bonding. We've talked on the podcast at length about something called enmeshment and Enmeshment is often a way that kids, children, take on the covert, hidden, remember, needs of their family system. It's really common for one or both parents who are engaged in an incredibly dysfunctional marriage to bond inappropriately with one of their children. And the parent in this situation is using the child to meet their unmet emotional needs that should be being met by themselves or a partner or lover of a similar age. This relationship can easily become inappropriately sexualized or romanticized. So for example, a daughter might become daddy's little girl, right? Daddy's little princess. Or a son might become mommy's little man. You know, you're my man. You take care of me. In both of these cases, I want to make this very clear. The child is being abandoned. The parents are getting 
their needs met at the expense of the child's needs. The child needs a parent, not a spouse. So if this happened to you, this was emotional sexual abuse. Unconscious, probably, yes, but it doesn't mean that it didn't have a profound impact on you. We've spoken about Pia Melody before in the series. She gives the following definition of emotional sexual abuse. Pia Melody says that when, quote, one parent has a relationship with the child that is more important than the relationship they have with their spouse, there is emotional sexual abuse present. Sometimes both parents emotionally enmesh and bond with their child. And the child in this situation is trying incredibly hard to take care of both of their parents' feelings. John Bradshaw in his book talks about a client that she described a situation where her dad would come and get her in the middle of the night when she was sleeping and put her in bed with him in the guest bedroom. And he would do this mainly to punish his wife for sexually refusing him, turning down his sexual advances. And the daughter who grew up to become John Bradshaw's client suffered incredibly with very, very confused sexual identity. So this is what cross-generational bonding looks like. And it can occur with a parent and a child of the same sex too. A most common form of this in our current culture is with a mother and a daughter. So when mom has sexualized rage, for example, maybe she fears and she hates all men. This is just an example. She might use her daughter for her emotional needs and maybe contaminate her daughter's feelings about men, right? This might look like a mom who's gone through hell and back in her life and and just is completely poisoned against men because she's had a few really bad experiences that she needs to process on her own with therapy and work. But instead, she tells her daughter, men only want one thing. They only want to get into your pants. So you have to be really careful, you know, that kind of stuff. And this colors the daughter's worldview, and it will give this daughter a veil through which she sees, quote unquote, all men. So the issue here is whether the parent is there for the child's needs rather than the child being there for the parent's needs. And while children have the capacity to be sexual in a way that's appropriate to their developmental level, whenever an adult is being sexual with a child, there is sexual abuse, point blank period. I want to reiterate this again about children do have the capacity to be sexual, but only in a way that's appropriate to their developmental level. And I'm talking about this. It's not an easy topic to talk about. No one wants to think about kids and think about any kind of sexuality. It feels wrong, right? But eventually all children will become adults and there is a natural unfolding of human sexuality that takes place and it's a delicate process that needs to be respected. There needs to be boundaries and there needs to be a emotionally mature parent who can handle that. 
I'd love to give an example. I already gave an example from my own life of what I think and have spoken to my therapist about. I used to have shame about that consensual kind of like sexual play I engaged in when I was a kid. I didn't even know what sex was. I have a funny story (laughs) that I can share with you. I once got in trouble at school because I told a couple of girls, we were all, I think we were in second grade. That would have made me, for those of my international listeners who don't uh, talk about grades here in the West, there were a couple of girls in my class um, that I was really good friends with. I think we were probably, second grade would make us like, kindergarten is five. So I'd say like, we were probably seven or eight and everyone was going, I just remember very vaguely but I remember us being like, what is sex? Like how are babies made? Right. (laughs) This is very normal. It's normal for kids to, to wonder about these things. And I spread a rumor to that spread around my class that sex was when a woman sucked a man's penis and a man sucked a woman's boobs. And that's how babies were made. (laughs) And I thought that I had it all figured out, right? And so then, of course, my friends went and told their parents, I think, and my parents got called. And then that is when I had the birds and the bees talk with my mom. And I'll never forget coming home and my mom saying, like, we need to have a talk. And she got out this book that we had and it kind of explained sex. And it was one of the most mortifying experiences ever. But my mom sat me down. And she talked to me about it, right? And she used a book and we worked it through. Was I mortified? Yes, but it was a developmental stage that I needed to go through. Is it normal for kids to talk about these things? Absolutely. Another normal way that kids can be sexual in a way appropriate to their developmental level, I worked at a preschool for a bit when I was, I think around 18, 19, my first year of college one of my favorite jobs. I love, 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 love working with kids. I just think kids are so funny, especially preschool age kids. The shit they come out with is hilarious. So I noticed, and I got into a conversation with one of the women that worked at the preschool, there was nap time every single day. And when I worked nap times, I remember that there was this one little girl who she had a blanket and she kind of like rubbed on her blanket it almost looked like she was like humping her blanket and i remember being like what the fuck is going on there and i talked to the teacher who was there and she was an older woman who owned the preschool and she said that's just a completely normal thing it might look sexual to us but this might just be a way that she's learned to self-soothe herself and if we tell her to we don't want to tell her to stop because she doesn't think of that as being inappropriate right so just let her do her thing It's a way that she's learning about her body. And some kids do like rub their bodies on things and maybe even like a masturbatory way, but they haven't learned to think of sex or um, arousal as good or bad yet. This is a natural unfolding of their understanding of their intimate anatomy. And it is a way they're learning to self-soothe. And that might make adults uncomfortable or, and often a lot of sexual shame. For example, if the teacher, on the other hand, saw this young girl doing that and said, stop that, stop that, that's bad, never do that, that would contribute to so much confusion for this young girl. So thank God this beautiful preschool teacher, who is just such a lovely woman, by the way, she had an understanding of that. And what she knew 
that children have the capacity to be sexual in a way that is appropriate to their developmental level. I realize that might be difficult to talk about and weird to hear, but this is how a lot of toxic shame develops is when kids are made to feel like this natural exploration of their body is somehow wrong. A child's sexual exploration and identity should be allowed to unfold in a way that is appropriate for the level that they're at. So I'm giving these examples, although they might sound weird, it certainly felt weird for me even to have that conversation with that preschool teacher, but I learned a lot that day. So sexual abuse can also come from older siblings. And as I mentioned before, in general, sexual behavior by kids of the relative same age is not immediately sexually abusive. It can be very confusing when we look back on it as adults, but it's not immediately abusive. The rule of thumb usually is that when a child is experiencing what is known in the psychological world as sexual acting out, at the hands of a child that is up to three or four years older than them, it is sexually abusive. I witnessed this at the hands of a boy in my neighborhood that was four or five years older than me. It was very confusing. I told my parents about it. It resulted in my dad going over and having very stern words with the boy's father across the street and then I just remember that it was never spoken about again and I was not allowed to play with that boy anymore. It was very, very confusing and to my dad's credit, I think he dealt with it in the best way he knew how, right? He didn't know as much as he we do now, did they know that I would need therapy after that or anything like that? No, but I was so confused. I felt like I did something bad, that sex was bad, right? So I hope that this can give you a better understanding of how complicated covert and emotional sexual abuse can be and how much of a boundary violation it is and how it can set us up to have one, a really fucked up relationship with our own sexual identity in the future and struggles connecting with people in a sexual way that feels healthy and natural to us, and also how this can manifest in incredible boundary violations and a disconnection from our intuition of what feels right and what feels wrong and being able to say no. I want to take a small detour and talk about physical abuse. So spare the rod and you spoil the child has been quoted forever as a biblical justification or injunction for some kind of corporal punishment, right? For the longest time, beating a child was seen as a good thing. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. Kind of made me laugh. I got a comment on my Instagram this week, some girl that commented and said, I love the podcast, but I'm so tired of the biblical references in the shame series. And I'm going, bro, (laughs) we cannot talk about toxic shame without talking about the Bible because the Bible has been the justification through which so much abuse has happened, right? And so the Bible and Christianity, particularly fundamentalist Christianity and a perversion of 
theology has been used to justify abuse. And we have to talk about these things. So if you can't understand that talking about the Bible is going to be something that is a nuanced thing, we have to discuss these things to be able to understand how toxic shame has really taken root historically, well, then you may not be mature enough to take in this type of content, just to put it quite bluntly. So I digress. Physical violence against kids and women is part of an ancient and pervasive tradition. It is baked in to our society. And physical violence is second only to sexual violence in the toxic shame that it creates. And the thing about physical violence is it's actually really addictive. You might not have known that before hearing it now. Offenders, people who perpetuate physical violence, are literally addicted to the violence and fueled by the toxic shame that they feel in performing the physically violent acts. And violent offenders are almost always based in toxic shame. So let's talk about what a profile of a physically abusive parent that is shame-based would look like. So this type of parent would be isolated, they would have a poor self-image, struggle with being sensitive to others' feelings. They were usually physically abused themselves as kids. They may have been deprived of basic mothering. They struggle with having a plethora of unmet needs for love and comfort. They're in denial of their problems and the impact of their problems on other people. They would feel that there's no one to turn to for advice. They have completely unrealistic expectations of their kids. They expect their kids to meet their needs for comfort and nurturing. They expect their kids to act like little adults. When their kids fail to meet their needs, they interpret the parent <laughs> as rejection and respond with anger and frustration and they deal with their kids as if they were much much older than they are the thing about physical abuse is that there's not a lot of good data on the extent of it the usual data covers the cases that are reported but it excludes those not treated by a physician and the cases treated by a physician but not identified as abuse and those cases identified as abuse but not reported. A really shocking statistic that I came across is that it's estimated that there are 200 unreported cases of physical violence against children for every single case that are reported. So you can imagine how pervasive this is in our society and how it is unspoken, a secret, a shameful, toxic secret. So it allows it to keep growing like mold. So the ownership of children by parents and the belief that children are these willful creatures that need their wills broken. We talked about how this belief was uh, very pervasive in certain fundamental Christianity sects and also in different religions as well. Kids need their wills broken. This accounts for the rationale of how parents make it okay to hit or spank or beat their kids. The victim of the physical violence is also bonded to the violence 
out of this toxic shame. And in the beginning, the victims bond out of sheer terror. But as the abuse continues, their self-worth is diminished little by little by little. And as it continues to become diminished, the victim loses the ability to choose at all. They become like starving children looking for morsels and crumbs of love. And because violence against children is irrational and impulsive, it's often random and unpredictable. The random quality of this type of violence sets up what is called learned helplessness. You may have heard that term before, but for those who haven't, learned helplessness is a kind of mental confusion. When you struggle with learned helplessness, you will no longer be able to think or plan. You might become passively just accepting of the abuse, thinking this is just the way it is. This is my life now. And this is giving me goosebumps because it is truly soul murdering. It is a destruction of human life. You might be alive, but you don't feel alive. It's like learned helplessness feels like walking around like a living zombie with no soul. It's just been murdered. Physical violence is common in family life because of what we spoke about in previous episodes, poisonous pedagogy, right? And poisonous pedagogy is this belief that we need to respect our parents above all else. And the idea of poisonous pedagogy promotes the supports corporal punishment. It's still endorsed as a way to teach kids about the harsh realities of life, right? Our common nursery rhyme, you may have heard of this, about the old woman who lives in a shoe, attests to the common acceptance of physical punishment. I heard about this old nursery rhyme. The nursery rhyme, for those of you who haven't heard it, is a mother goose tale, and it goes like this. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread and whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Nice, right? (laughs) We grew up hearing this. I grew up reading Mother Goose and I remember hearing this tale. Physical violence is pretty much just the norm in many dysfunctional families today. And this includes physically spanking, like having to go and get your own weapons of torture. Like I'm going to go get the belt, right? My dad tells me like his dad had various different like weapons that he would go get like a switch or a belt and being punched, slapped, slapped in the face, uh, pulled by your arm or your hair, yanked on, choked, shook, kick, pinch, tortured with tickling, being threatened with violence of abandonment, Like I knew family members that would tell their kids, I'm going to call the police. Do you want me to call the police? Like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Being threatened with being put in jail, witnessing violence done to a parent or sibling. All of this is incredibly damaging. 
and so, so common. It's incredibly common as well for women to be being beat by their husbands in a home and children witnessing their mom being beaten is equivalent to the child being beaten. A witness to violence is always a victim of violence. We're now going to talk about emotional abuse, which is pretty universal. Everyone on earth has probably been shamed by emotional abuse. Poisonous pedagogy, that belief that respect thy parents above all else, right? It's quite clear about the fact that emotions are weak. We are supposed to be rational and logical and not let ourselves be controlled by our emotions. Our emotions should be controlled. We should control them. But anger And sexual feelings are especially something that we must repress, shove it down, don't talk about it. It breaks my heart to think about how many people right now were never affirmed or nurtured at all in the expression of their sexual or angry feelings. How many people out there It is so much more common to have been taught to shove these feelings down than to express them. The people who had healthy modeling of this are in the very, very small minority. And this makes a lot of sense why we live in such a fucked up society today. Our emotions are part of our power, our basic power. I want to tell you about what your emotions do for you. Your feelings and emotions serve two really important functions in your psychic life, right? First, your feelings and emotions monitor your basic needs. They tell you when you have a need or a loss or when you've had enough of something, right? They're a monitoring system. Without our emotional energy, Emotion is literally energy in motion. Without that emotional energy, we wouldn't be aware of our needs at all. And the shoving of these feelings and our disconnection from our feelings is why many of us, when we're asked, like, well, what do you need? How many of you have been asked that? Well, what do you need? The sad part is, is that some people have never had been asked that. But you know how fucked up it feels when someone says, what do you need? My therapist asked me that once. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what my needs are. I've never even thought about that. That is because I didn't have access to my emotions. So emotions also give us the fuel or energy to act. As I mentioned before, emotion is energy in motion. This energy moves us to get what we need. When our basic needs are being violated, right? Our anger moves us to fight or run healthy anger. I did a whole episode on this. And if you're interested in that and you feel disconnected from your emotions, highly recommend you go listen to my episode on anger and healthy anger. You can just search back from the borderline and anger, and it will probably come up in your podcast player. But if you can't find it, feel free to let me know. So our anger is the energy that gives us strength. 
the incredible Hulk becomes the huge, powerful Hulk, right? When he needs the energy and power to take care of others or get rid of some injustice, you can really think about that like in a superhero kind of way. It's a good example. Our sadness, on the other hand, is an energy that we discharge in order to heal. Tears are cleansing. I gave this example before, but a holistic healer that I saw, my acupuncturist, this beautiful, amazing Chinese woman who helped me so much in my recovery journey, told me that she worries more about her clients that don't cry than the ones that do. Crying is good. So as we discharge this energy over losses relating to our basic needs, we can integrate the shock of these losses and adapt to reality. Sadness is painful. It hurts. It sucks. It's not fun to feel. So we try to avoid it as much as possible. But the thing is, discharging sadness, crying, sobbing, letting it out, feeling it, releases the energy involved in our emotional pain. Holding things in freezes the pain within us. And the therapeutic slogan is that grieving is the healing feeling, right? That's very, very commonly said in AA circles, for example. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fear, on the other hand, releases an energy which warns us of danger to our basic needs. Fear is an energy leading to our discernment and wisdom. Guilt is another emotion and guilt, healthy guilt, as we've talked about already, is a former of conscience. It tells us when we have transgressed our values, right? It moves us to take action and change. If we hurt someone and we feel guilty, we know we'll never do that again. For example, I cheated on someone in the past, one of my high school boyfriends, and he was devastated. And I will never forget 
his tears and I felt so guilty and throughout my life that has never left me and it made me want to change as a person that guilt was a good thing if I felt no guilt I wouldn't have grown so shame as we've talked about in the first episode healthy shame warns us not to try to be more or less than human we all laughed I had so many of my premium submarines talk on patreon about how bad they felt for the poor worms (laughs) When we talked about that episode of like, you either feel superhuman, like grandiose narcissist with toxic shame, or you feel like I'm worse than a worm, right? But shame signals to us that we have limitations and that's okay. And it's part of being human. Joy is another emotion, right? It's an exhilarating energy that emerges from within when all of our needs are being met. When we feel joy, we want to sing, run, and jump with joy, right? The energy of joy signals that all is well. The devastating thing that I've learned in my own life is that often when we have been disconnected from our feelings, we are even cut off from the capacity to even feel joy sometimes, which is really, really tragic. But I want to let you know that if you feel disconnected from your emotions, this is not a forever thing. You absolutely can find connection with your feeling again. Healing is possible. So when our emotions are not mirrored and named, we lose contact with one of our most vital human powers. Parents who are out of touch with their own feelings cannot model those emotions for their children. I want to repeat that again. If you had parents who were out of touch with their own emotions, it would have been impossible for them to name and model those feelings for you. They're out of touch. They're shut down. They're physically numb. They're not even aware of what they're feeling. And so they stop their children's emotions too, because it's too much for them to bear. This is actually approved of by our most sacred tradition of parenting rules. These rules especially shame children by denying their emotions. Emotions are considered weak. A good example of this is I remember I've given this example many times on the podcast, but I'm sharing it again for newer listeners. I remember being very freaked out. When I was going to church, I grew up Catholic and thinking about going to hell and heaven. And I kept hearing that if you lied, you went to hell. And I had already lied a lot as a kid. And I was like convinced I was going to hell. And I thought very like big when I was a kid. I remember laying in bed and thinking about what happens after I die. What happened before I was even born? The the grandiosity of those concepts scared the fucking shit out of me. So what did I do? I went to my parents and said like, what, where was I before I died? Like what happens after we die? And I remember just feeling the vibe from my parents was like, don't talk about that. Why are you even thinking about that? Just go back to bed. Right. And I just remember thinking like, oh, the message I got then was, oh, it's not normal to talk about this. People don't have these feelings. So what? I shoved them. And I felt alone. I felt like I was the only one feeling that way. I didn't need answers from my parents. What I kind of wanted to hear was, you know, that stuff scares me too. That would have been better than what I got, right? But again, I don't blame my parents. 
It's just very, very common, right? So religion, now that I'm bringing up my Catholic upbringing, religion endorses the poisonous pedagogy, the respect parents above all else. Anger is especially considered bad. Anger is even one of the seven deadly sins in Christianity, and these sins send you to hell. And in its most accurate teaching, the deadly sin is not really the emotion of anger, but the behaviors resulting from the judgment often occasioned by anger. Behavior is often linked to anger, screaming, cursing, hitting, publicly criticizing or maybe condemning someone and physical violence. So these behaviors are, of course, horrible and can lead to quote-unquote bad things, but their behavior is based on judgment, not on feeling. And what I've recognized so much is that religious teachings from all different practices are so wildly misinterpreted, and when they are interpreted by people who don't take the time to understand the true nature of the teachings, we get shit like this, which is, anger is bad. Don't feel anger. That's not right. Anger serves a purpose. There is healthy and unhealthy anger. Anger flashes up in us to get our needs met, to provide boundaries, and it's a good thing. But when anger turns toxic, that's when it can lead to behaviors that hurt ourselves and others, and that is what we want to avoid. But when we have this simplistic understanding of ugh, ugh, caveman anger is bad, (laughs) children are shamed for their anger, and children often see parents who are angry and rageful. And the message is all too often, it's okay for parents to be angry and scream and shout and abuse their power, but it's not okay for you as the child. So let's talk about what happens when our emotions are shamed by society and our parents. When anger is shamed, for example, a couple of different things happen first. The anger becomes what John Bradshaw describes in his book. It becomes shame bound. Every time the person feels angry, they feel shame. Second, as anger is shamed, then it's repressed. And repression is what's known in psychology as a primary ego defense. Once it's set in motion, it operates automatically and unconsciously. So as the anger energy goes unconscious, it tries so hard to be expressed. And as more and more anger is repressed, it grows more and more and more and more. We've spoken about my queen, who I love, Virginia Satir. We talked about Virginia Satir's five freedoms in the premium submarine episode last week. So Virginia Satir is one of the founding people, I was about to say founding fathers, but she's a founding mommy (laughs) of parts therapy and internal family systems. Virginia Satir once compared this repression of anger to keeping hungry dogs in a basement. The hungrier they get, the more they try to get out. And the more they try to get out, 
the more we have to guard them, the more blocks we have to put up. Maybe they're going to scratch through the door. So you have to put like an iron door, then a lock, then you have to put some, uh, I don't know, some sound panels there to stop from even hearing them bark. You have to get better and better with stuffing the, the noise down and ignoring the dogs. So the repressed energy grows and grows and grows. And finally, it has a life of its own. And one day, there's just no more room to stuff that energy and it will erupt. And the person who's been repressing it then feels like they're completely out of control, right? This is when we feel like, I don't know where the fuck that came from. Like you just lose your shit, right? And you really regret what you did. And after the stormy outburst is over, right? We say things like that. I don't know what came over me. Wow, I really like, I really lost control. It's because of this repressed, unresolved, shame-bound anger. It turns into rage and rage is the outcome of shame-bound anger that's been repressed and shoved into the basement like those angry dogs. When sorrow or sadness is shamed, for example, it builds this energy into inconsolable grief and despair. And sometimes this is the basis of suicidality. In our culture, children are shamed for crying. And if they're not shamed, they're crying that that healthy discharge that they need to do to cry is stopped with bribes and rewards, right? A child might be crying and say, here, here's a, here's a bottle, shove it in their mouth, right? Sometimes there is this magic timetable so that after the crying for a designated number of minutes, a kid is told, okay, that's it. You've cried enough. It's time to be done now. And kids are condemned and ridiculed for crying. Sometimes they're hit or spanked for crying. And I grew up hearing it, and I know you've probably heard it. I literally heard one of my little cousins be told by her mom, I'll give you something to cry about. Why are you crying? There's no reason you're crying. We're at the zoo. This is a great day. You want me to give you something to cry about? Wild. It's so, so common. So fear is also something that kids are shamed for feeling. Shamed and denied, fear actually splits off and grows into fully-fledged paranoia or terror. Having the permission to have sadness and fear is often connected with gender and sex roles. So for example, little boys historically are supposed to be strong and not cry and not be afraid. And little girls are more often given more permission for sorrow and fear. However, I don't think we should take this too far because all feelings are often shamed and repressed in our present cultural parenting forms. So regardless of gender roles or anything like that, it's just so common for feelings to be stuffed, shoved, and repressed by parents. Even joy is shamed. When we're happy, excited, and rambunctious, we're often told stuff like, Pride comes before a fall, or don't puff up your chest too much, don't get a big head, or just remember they're starving kids in wherever the country, right? You know what? Don't feel so happy, or calm down, that's too much, tone it down, that kind of thing. 
Or if maybe we have a depressed parent and you want to be bubbly and joyous and sing around the house, you felt like you couldn't do that. And this comes out later in the experience of feeling shame. And every time you feel happy or feeling shame when you feel you're doing really well, there's probably no aspect of human nature or human activity that has been as toxically and dysfunctionally shamed as much as our sense of sexuality. Sexuality is part of the core of human selfhood. Our sex is not something we have to do. It's part of who we are. It's the first thing we notice about each other sometimes. Sexuality is a basic fact in all created things. And if we shut off our sex drive, we would completely cease to exist as a human race. (laughs) Our sexual energy or our libido is our own unique incarnation of life force. To have your sex drive shamed is to be shamed to the core. And as we talked about before, all children naturally have a certain sexual curiosity. I gave the example of me and my weird little (laughs) wonderings about sex that were completely wrong, right? But do you remember as a kid when you found out that sex, like a baby was made by a penis going into a woman's vagina, you're like, whoa, what? (laughs) It doesn't seem believable. Sexuality is really confusing and like, it's like a car crash. Like you can't look away. You're kind of like, ew, but also I'm really curious, right? (laughs) And children naturally explore their genitals. And at certain ages, they engage in childhood sexual play that I reiterate again, that is developmentally appropriate for their age. And we've talked about that already. So let's talk about how sexuality might be shamed. So let's paint a picture. One day, little three-year-old Michael might be exploring his body, right? And he names his nose. He points and he says, my nose, this is my nose, right? And his mom goes, yay, right? And calls grandma to report that Michael has like made this amazing achievement. He's learning about his body. And grandma comes over and asks Michael to show him like, where's your nose, Michael? Which then he does and he points to his nose. And on each occasion when he names his nose, everyone goes, yay, right? Good job. And then he finds other parts of his body. These are my ears, my eyes, right? Then one day while they're out at a Sunday barbecue, right? Little Michael finds his penis and he's really excited. And he thinks, if the, if the nose got him, this is really going to get him. So he wanders out into the backyard with all his parents and he proudly displays his penis. So something very different happens to Michael in this. His mom rushes over, grabs him by the arm. And if you're a kid and you've ever been yanked by the arm, you know that feeling when you're little and you basically get like basically carried by your arm somewhere and then the parent lets go of your arm and you can feel it throbbing, Right. So imagine little Michael, mom runs over, grabs him by the arm, yanks him over. Her face is very angry. She's visibly mortified, shaken, and she tells him in no uncertain terms, never do that again. Never do that again. 
What's the message he learns? What you did was bad. Children tend to internalize their parents at their worst. So the more out of control a parent is, the more the child's security is threatened. So variations of this scenario with little three-year-old Michael, right, happen in the best of families. Parents who had their own sexuality shamed can't handle the children's natural sexuality. So when a kid explores their sexuality, the parent reacts with disapproval, discomfort, or even worse, something like disgust. So global type comments like that's bad or don't ever touch yourself there. Go go get go be decent. Put some fucking clothes on or cover up your private parts, right? These types of comments link sexuality and our bodies to something bad, dirty and disgusting. This part of us needs to be disowned, right? That's the message we get. The shame becomes linked then to our sexuality. And a child growing up in such a family, which might even be most of us, right? Because it's very, very common. We come to believe and feel that sexuality and our intimate parts are shameful. So most of our vital, spontaneous, instinctual life gets shamed as children. It's really sad. Children are shamed for being too much, too rambunctious, too joyful, for wanting things, for laughing too loud, for crying for too long, for asking questions that make their parents feel uncomfortable. So much dysfunction, so much dysfunctional shame rather, occurs at places like the dinner table, right? Children are forced to eat when they're not hungry. They're forced to eat what they do do not find appetizing to them and being shamed and shunned and exiled at a communal family place like the dinner table until like your plate is cleaned is not unusual in family life. I would say this might not be as popular or happening as much now, but back Our parents and our grandparents for sure experience this kind of thing. How many of us have grandmas or parents who were told like, clean your plate before you get up? And I don't know, maybe this still happens. This didn't happen to me. I remember my parents would ask me to like, at least try a little bit of something. But I remember very clearly, and again, this is no shade to my mom because like, She's just trying her best. I was going over to a friend's house and my mom wanted me, my mom prepared me. I'll never forget it. She made me some cottage cheese and pineapple. And by the way, I actually really like that combination now. I don't know if you've ever had it. Like cottage cheese goes really well with pineapple, with strawberries, with like jam and things like this. But it sounded fucking disgusting to me. And I think I was six and my mom said that I couldn't go over to my friend's house until I ate this. And I didn't want to eat it. I didn't want to. And I remember I couldn't end up going to my friend's house because I wouldn't eat this thing. (laughs) And so this is very, very common. I remember being so angry too because it just didn't sound good to me then. And I didn't want to eat it. And I didn't understand why I had to do something I didn't want to do so I could go to my friend's house. 
But in reality, my mom just wanted me to eat some food so that I wouldn't be hungry, right? Going over to play. But it turned into this whole literally knockdown, drag out screaming tantrum on my part, I remember. And then I ended up not being able to go over to play, right? So this kind of stuff happens all the time. So when our instinctual life is shamed, the natural core of our life is like bound up. That's why John Bradshaw's book is called Healing the Shame That Binds You. So he describes it as being like an acorn going through the excruciating agony of becoming an oak tree or a flower feeling ashamed for blossoming and becoming a flower. What happens is that because our instincts are part of our natural endowment, right? They can't be repressed. So like these things are going to happen. We're going to have sexual drives. We're going to have our own wants and needs. We're going to have emotions that might make parents that are ashamed as well feel uncomfortable, that might feel inconvenient for them, right? But we're just trying to blossom as kids. And when that process is hampered in some way or shamed, they become like the hungry dogs that need to be watched and locked up, like Virginia Satir described in her really, really profound example. So we could think of shame as something like a master emotion because as we internalize shame and become identified with it as we have described exhaustively in these previous episodes, all the other emotions that we feel are then bound and tainted by that shame. We can't experience the pure healthy anger, pure sadness, healthy and let it go. It's all bound by shame. Emotionally shame-bound parents can't have the capacity to allow their children to have emotions because the child's emotions triggers the parent's emotions. Repressed emotions often feel too big, like they would completely overwhelm us if we expressed them. You know that feeling where if you think about something horrible that happened to you and you really want to cry or a fear that you have, and you know that you can't let yourself feel that because you're scared that if you let the tears come, that you will be completely annihilated by that. You'll never come back from it again. That's what these toxic shame-induced emotions make us believe when in reality, no matter how much we cry, no matter how deeply we go into our sadness and pain and trauma, we always can come back. Sadness is always only temporary, but it can be very, very easy to forget that and convince ourselves that if we allow ourselves to step into that sadness, that we will fall into a pit of despair and completely fall apart. So that's it for our exploration of toxic shame today. In our next episode, and there's two more episodes of our shame series left, we're going to be talking about our childhood dependency needs. What are the needs we needed to get met and how these needs get twisted and bound up by toxic shame. We'll also talk about perfectionism and how that is also connected to a sense of toxic shame. 
I thought what could be really helpful and what we'll do for the premium part of the podcast is explore a meditative experience that will help us become more deeply connected to our emotions. Because as a survivor of sexual abuse myself and someone who struggles with the debilitating effects of toxic shame, these types of exercises have been very helpful for me as a way to learn that I can become a safe space for myself and that even if I become overcome by my emotions, I can always get myself back out of them again. So what you're going to hear next, if you're on the public feed of Back from the Borderline, is the first part of this meditation, and it will fade out. You can enjoy the relaxing aspects of the first part, but in order to enjoy the full meditation, you will have to become a premium submarine to get the full experience. And you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking premium submarines. So let's dive into it. words of this meditation were inspired by says Christensen. I will link to additional meditations by this incredible healer in the episode description so that you can further explore her work. Let's begin. Find a comfortable place where you won't be disturbed. Settle into your body. This time is for you. Dear soul, the world can be an overwhelming place when your heart is both the sail and the hole in your boat. But luckily, You do not need to live in the world because it lives in you. And when you feel like there's too much being asked of you, you can see this as a sign that you're asking too much of yourself. and to take a moment to come back to the autonomy you have over your body in any environment. Most overwhelm stems from a place of deep self-distrust, a belief in your capabilities to move through discomfort and to come out on the other side to make the right decisions to choose the wiser path to not give in to your triggers learning to believe and trust that there is a home within yourself 
learning to tune into your inner world and alchemizing your toxic shame begins by meeting with the black bear within. This war-weary bear of your fears, your stories, and validations that support your belief in your own brokenness. Now, I ask that you come with me on a journey and create a safe space to discover what lies in the heart of all of your fears. I invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath. Come home to the body. The only place where time exists. The body, the container that allows spirit to experience life through it. Connect to the breath, the first and last act of life. Settle down, settle in as if you were a river with murky water. Let the sediments of your day fall to the ground now so you can clearly see what is left, what is clear, what is pure and unconditional. Truly eternal. I'd like you to imagine that you're sitting on the floor in a quiet room. There are no other rooms in this house, just this open, light, and welcoming space with one wooden door and lots of big windows you feel warm safe and comfortable through the window you can see beautiful thick pine trees in a vast evergreen forest. You can hear the gentle lapping of waves somewhere close by 
streams of light fall across the floorboards as you watch fine specks of dust dance between the light and shadows. You walk to open the window and immediately the smell of juniper and warm pine needles fills your nose and lungs and a peaceful, strong stone fireplace offers a nourishing sound behind you. This is a safe place. A place you can call home. In this place, you belong. In this place, you are welcome. Nothing can enter this space without your permission. Struggles, questions, fear, heartbreak, uncertainty, guilt. Longings and toxic shame cannot enter here without your permission. This is a place of attentive restoration. In this place, you reconnect with the well deep within your own soul, to drink from the waters within. Take a deep breath, create a little more space in your body, whatever that feels like for you now, don't judge it. And as you breathe and create this space, try to sense a little more autonomy over this room. You are in control. This is your space. And as you breathe and your sense of power increases, you find that your breath reinforces the walls, the door, the floorboards, the windows. It is through this breath, your breath, that you are protected and safe. Feel the power of this breath, strengthening your safe place. Nothing comes in. No energy is expended outward. All 
is allowed to be in impartial stillness. I'd like you to choose something difficult that you're going through right now. Something that's making you doubt in your ability to move through it in the best possible way. Something that's making you feel powerless. As if there's no hope. I want you to hold this in your mind. Call attention to something in your life now. How does it feel in your body? In the heart of this struggle, of yours that just flowed through your being a moment ago and maybe still is lies a deep-seated belief that you are incapable of solving it of healing it and of learning from it and ultimately, from moving forward in your life. You can find exactly what this deep-seated belief is by completing the following sentence. I will never, because I am not, I will never, because I am not. I'd like you to invite this limiting belief into your safe space right now. Imagine the heavy wooden door of your safe room opening. Leaves rushing in as your belief comes through the door. Your belief, this story that you've created about yourself, has manifested into a great black bear. This bear carries the battle scars of your past. A life spent in fear, doubt, and self-disgust. Its fur is matted and unkempt. It limps slowly towards you, one arm tucked against its chest. And now the bear seats itself heavily in front of you. This black bear 
carries all of your emotional triggers, your validations, your fears in each fiber of its hair. It is the bearer of your ache. Take a few seconds to really feel how destructive this black bear has been on your life. It feels immovable, volatile, and so hungry. Now that your guest is sitting in front of you, I'd like you to remember that this bear is not part of you, but it has been invited into your space for a few moments. You still exist without your stories. I invite you to place a hand on your heart and offer your recognition of its presence here. I invite you to bow your head a little and follow these words. I see you. I feel you. Thank you for being here. I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to hold a space for you. To offer my presence. It's okay. You're safe here. And now, take a deep breath. Release your hand from your heart and allow this bear to simply be in your presence without identifying with it, without trying to control or change it in any way. You watch the bear as it sits, its arm cradling something against its chest. You can't quite see it because the bear is hunched over to protect it. You ask it to show you. And because it feels safe here with you, it begins to unfurl a shape from within its paw. It's 
All right, everyone, you know what that means. That's the end of the free preview of our meditation. To find out what the bear was holding in its paw and to unlock this full episode, you will need to become a premium submarine. You can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking premium submarine. From there, you'll be taken to my Patreon page and you can select between two different tiers. One tier unlocks access to all the archived and bonus content and all full episodes of Back from the Borderline, so you'll never hear a fade out again. (laughs) And the other more expensive tier unlocks access to all of that plus voice notes from me. These are personal messages where you get a bit closer to me in my recovery journey. And this week as a special surprise, I uploaded a full one hour extended version of this meditation. I found when I did the original version, which is incredible by the way, I found that I wanted to linger in that space for a bit longer, so I created an extended version where it's just the sounds of the room for an hour long after the meditation. So if you'd like to access either of those, unlock full episodes of Back from the Borderline as well as the full archive, which contains over 120 hours of additional episodes, you can sign up at backfromtheborderline.com and click Premium Submarine. I'll see you right back here next week where we will be tackling episode 7 of the Toxic Shame series. There's two more episodes. Episode 8 is our final one. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.